Good morning, ladies. Welcome, welcome, welcome to um, our final week of the fall semester of Women in the Word. Can you believe it? I am Shelley Davis. If you weren't here last week, I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And it is an honor to be here to finish up Daniel with you this morning. And um, all of this great stuff on the stage, I wish I could say it was for me because I uh, deserve all these lights and microphones. But really, we're having another worship conference. Worship, uh, what do you call it? Okay, I'm Rick Perry right now. What did I lose the word? Uh, there's going to be another worship uh, concert tomorrow night on this stage uh, with the contemporary worship team. It's called Awaken, and I believe it's at 7 o'clock. It's free, and you're all invited. So come and be a part of Awaken tomorrow night. You know, if you were here last week, you heard me tell the story about uh, just getting back from visiting my kids in England. And, you know, every time I've had the opportunity to go to England and visit them, when I get back, Linda Henry, where's Linda Henry, always says to me, always says to me, did you see the queen? And I think it's because Linda wants to be the queen. But um, anyway, she always says, did you see the queen? And guess what? When I was there two years ago visiting my kids, I did see the queen. And it wasn't at an event or some sort of a parade or anything. I was standing on this uh, train platform in this small town in uh, north of Cambridge where my kids live. And it was freezing cold and actually snowing so hard that day that I had kind of stepped back against the building because I was so very cold. My husband was standing at the very edge of the platform waiting for this commuter trying to take us into um, London. And so when the train pulled up, he was nose to nose with the glass in the very front car. And there, looking out, on the other side of the glass from him, six inches away, was Queen Elizabeth II of England. And so I was so cold, I just jumped right on. I'm not paying any attention. I'm just trying to get out of that snow, which was wet and nasty. And I get on the train with my bag, and I look back, and he and my little daughter-in-law are just standing there, staring in this... Window, And I'm like, come on. So they jump on the train and they get on and say, it's the queen. And she is in just a few feet from us in the next car. We're separated by a glass door there. And I thought, now I'm not even sure my husband knows what the queen looks like, you know. So I'm thinking, is that really the queen? And we're all kind of sitting down. What is she doing on this train? And one of the locals next to us said, Well, the queen is on an austerity program. Normally, she has her own train car that takes her from Sandringham, her estate, into London. But she's trying to save a little money here, just like the rest of us. And so she's coming now on the regular train into London. So we got to be on the train for 90 minutes with the queen and Her Majesty's Secret Service. And at one point, I stood up with a camera to take a picture of my husband and my kids because we're fixing to leave them and I wanted a picture of them. And Her Majesty's Secret Service guys in trench coats rush over to me and flash their badges. So at that point, I had no doubt that this really was Queen Elizabeth and said, "Um, 
oh, excuse me, mom, but uh, we do not allow pictures of the queen. And I said, well, that's great and good, but I want pictures of my kids, you know, so which I proceeded to do. When the train pulled into the station at London, all of our exits were blocked while her secret service rushed her off the train and into this big entourage of black Range Rovers. Um, you know, even though the queen is well guarded and she is wealthy and she does have a role in Great Britain, for all her position and her wealth and her power and celebrity, there is one thing the Queen of England is not. The Queen of England is not the sovereign ruler of Great Britain because Britain, despite having a queen that I wasn't allowed to take pictures of, um, Britain is now a constitutional monarchy. She is no longer the supreme ruler of England. And as we finish our journey with Daniel today and we look back over the last 10 weeks that we have had together, what I want you to know and remember about our study of Daniel together is that even though Daniel was God's prophet for 70 years and he was held in high esteem for his abilities as a prophet and a man of courage and a man of integrity um, the last 10 weeks, has not really been as much about Daniel and his power and his abilities as a prophet as it has been about God and his power and his abilities as the sovereign God of Israel. It's the story, Daniel is the story of the sovereignty of God over Israel, over kings and over kingdoms over the history and the future of the world. And certainly, it is the story of the sovereignty of God over his ability to bring about his redemptive plan for the nation of Israel and for the world. The word sovereign means supreme. It means highest in power, superior to all others. And sovereignty, whether it's applied to an earthly ruler or a divine ruler, always implies a couple of things. It implies absolute authority, and it implies all power. Now, a sovereign ruler is a ruler that not only has the authority to rule, because he has uh, all authority, but he has the ability through his power to carry out his will. A sovereign God not only has the ability and the power to govern all things, but this is the interesting point. He does so always and without exception. He not only has the power and the ability to govern all things, but he always does so. You know, he never just goes to the mall and leaves us uh, in the midst of our pitiful state. He always rules and always governs with the power and authority that he has. Our God is not merely sovereign, and this is what we've seen in Daniel. He's not merely sovereign in principle. Our God is sovereign in practice, in practice. Although the book of Daniel is really filled with incredible prophecy that we have all faithfully waded through together for the last 10 weeks, it's not just about interpreting prophecies. The prophecies that we've been studying, ladies, are truly just a means to the end of understanding God's sovereign plans for Israel and the world. And although Israel has been threatened with extinction time and time again, Through their suffering, they have been purified and refined and eventually redeemed to a saving faith 
in the Messiah. That is God's sovereign plan for Israel. And we see it in Daniel's prophecies, don't we? That's where we're going to end up today, is at the end times and the end of God's sovereign plan for Israel. The sovereignty of God is the theological thread that runs throughout the entire book of Daniel. In the last 10 weeks, we've seen God's supremacy. We've seen God's kingship. We've seen his Godhead as he lays out his plan for his covenant people to come to a saving faith in the end times. A.W. Pink, who was a preacher and an author in the early 1900s, and he actually wrote a book on the sovereignty of God, a very good book on the sovereignty of God, said to say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. And that's what the book of Daniel has done from the page one. What we've read and studied and tried to understand has simply been the undergirding of understanding that God is God. You know, David didn't struggle with the sovereignty of God. David understood that God was God. And he said this in First Chronicles on your verse sheet. First Chronicles 29:11 Yours O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours O Lord is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. That is the thread that runs through the entire book of Daniel as we finish up today. And let's do finish up today. Uh now We're going to begin at uh, verse 36 today. But before we do that, I want you to think back with me for just a few minutes to last week where we started Daniel's fourth and final vision beginning in chapter 10. Daniel was in the third year of Cyrus's reign. He was 85 years old. He was still God's prophet and he received a revelation concerning a great war. Now, He went to God with determination and prayed for understanding and God responded to him by sending him divine visitors in the form of Christ himself and the angel Gabriel. And the first part of chapter 11 that we looked at last week, Gabriel told Daniel these incredibly intricate details of Israel's fate under two factions of the Greek empire, the Ptolemic kings of the south, the Seleucid kings of the north. And his vision included this intense persecution that the nation of Israel was going to undergo before the first coming of Christ. It ended with the Maccabean revolt. And so accurately did Daniel's prophecy predict Israel's future before the first coming of Christ. In fact, I think I told you last week there were more than 130 prophecies fulfilled out of chapter 11 that we have been able to say these happened exactly the way God said they would. So accurate was it that there are many liberal theologians that believe this section of Daniel couldn't have been written by Daniel. That it had to have been written by someone else after the Maccabean revolt and after those things happened. And then they just went back and chronicled them. Of course, because we know that our God is sovereign and he uh, has complete control over Israel's past and present and future. We know that he has the authority and the power to lay out Israel's path in advance. So we, of course, know that Daniel did write it as prophecy. It wasn't written as history by someone else after the fact. Israel's past is under God's control. So as we finish chapter 11 today with the angel Gabriel, uh, Gabriel moves in verse 36 
from talking about near future prophecy, which is where we were last week up to verse 35, to far future prophecy to the end times. So read with me beginning in verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god who will greatly honor those and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. Gabriel simply introduces the leader in these verses as the king. In verse 36, Gabriel takes this giant leap forward uh, from where we were last week, which was up to the birth of the Messiah. He leaps all the way to the final seven years, the final 70th week of Daniel's prophecy to the end times. Now, if you have charts, and we've given you a whole bunch of charts, but one of the charts that Lynn handed out, I think, when she talked about chapter 7, if you don't have it now, you can look at it later. But it's called the premillennial scheme of world events. Um, and if you'll see on this chart... Um, The cross, of course, indicates the birth of Christ. And that's where we ended last week in verse 35, was all the events that uh, the angel predicted up to the birth of Christ and the resurrection. Um, Then where we are right now in our history today is in the church age, the church age, because we know who Jesus is and we're part of the body of Christ. So we are currently in the church age. The gap that occurs between verse 35 and 36 in chapter 11 is the gap between Daniel's 69th week that he ended last time and the 70th week. And that's where we are on this chart. We are in the church age in that gap. Now, where he picks up talking here in verse 36 is Daniel's 70th week, which is the seven-year tribulation period. So we're going to be talking about all the events that happen in the tribulation period at the end times. In, in the, the church, we call it the tribulation. In chapter 9, Daniel called it the 70th week, or the final seven years. Um, so the king that Gabriel speaks of right here in... Uh, Verse 36 is a king that appears at the beginning of the tribulation period. And so theologians believe, and certainly you get this from his description, that this is definitely the Antichrist. And the reason they um, don't attribute it to Antiochus that we looked at last week is because the things that happen here with the Antichrist, Antiochus did not fulfill. So this can't be Antiochus. It has to be the 70th week, the final seven years uh, of the tribulation before the second coming of Christ. 
In the three verses we just read, Gabriel reveals the evil character of the Antichrist. He starts right off telling us there's a king, and then he tells us all about him, what this guy is going to be really like, and it's not good. According to these verses, the Antichrist is going to appear to be a sovereign ruler because it says he has the power to do as he pleases. Apparently, he's not going to be subjected to any other human authority on the earth. And because of that, he is going to exalt himself higher than any god, implying, of course, that he's going to be demanded to be worshipped. If you exalt yourself higher than any other god, then you're going to expect everybody else to bow down for you. And that's exactly what he does. Uh, Paul shares a similar truth about the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians 2, 4 on your verse sheet. It says he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. But even though the Antichrist sets himself up to be God and he blasphemes God, we know that he's not really sovereign over the nation of Israel, is he? He's only doing as he pleases within the confines of God's sovereignty. And verse 36 nails that for us when it says, what has been determined must take place. What the angel means is what God has determined must take place, not what the Antichrist has determined. In other words, whatever power that the Antichrist possesses during these seven years and whatever is said about him in these verses is only because our sovereign God has allowed him to have it, has allowed him to have it for the time that it takes for God's indignation to with the Jews to run its course, for the discipline that he has planned out for the nation of Israel because they've turned their back on him to take place. What God ordains for Israel, whether it's blessings or discipline, is not going to be trumped by any human authority, even the Antichrist of end times. The duration of the Antichrist rule had already been determined by God. Read Revelation 17:17 on your verse sheet. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. God is definitely sovereign, and whatever power the Antichrist has, he only has it because the sovereign God has turned it over to him for a time. In verse 37, where it says he has no regards for the gods of his father, means that the Antichrist is actually going to reject his own religious heritage when he comes to power. Um, And he's going to have to do that in order to set himself up as God. If um, the Antichrist comes to power in this final seven years claiming to be a Christian, and there are many theologians that think that is a good possibility, um, then he's going to have to reject his Christian heritage or his Buddhist heritage or whatever it actually is when he comes to power. In order to set himself up as sovereign God, he can't claim allegiance to another God Uh, if he himself desires to be God. And it's that military dominance that's going to allow him to take over the whole world. And that's what we see in verses 40 through 45. Read those with me. 
At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and all the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. In these verses, the wars of the Antichrist in the second half of the 70th week, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, are described. If you'll remember, the first half of the tribulation period, and I think Deb talked about this a few weeks ago, the first three and a half years of the tribulation period are relatively peaceful. It's kind of a honeymoon period with this new guy. Uh, He's been given uh, power by the other rulers of the world, and he enters into a covenant with Israel. So the first three and a half years are pretty peaceful, even though he is the evil guy we just heard about. But it's the second three and a half years when he breaks his covenant with Israel and invades them. Um, verse 40 tells us he's, during this time he's going to sweep through countries that are now trying to oppose him like a flood. And you know how a flood happens. It just rolls over you before you realize what happens and there's nothing you can do to stop it. I loved that metaphor that they used here. And in verse 41, we actually see that he enters the beautiful land or Israel. And when he does that, he's breaking the covenant that he made with Israel at the beginning of this seven-year period. Israel is actually going to be occupied by the Antichrist in the last days of the tribulation. And in verse 45, the angel tells us that in the final conflict of this last three and a half years of the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon is going to be fought in Israel as the Antichrist sets up his headquarters in Jerusalem, actually on the Temple Mount. He makes his headquarters on the Temple Mount. And when he does that, there's not a Jewish person in the world that doesn't know what he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the Christ. But regardless of what the Antichrist claims about himself or thinks about himself, he is not the Christ and he is not the sovereign God over Israel or the world. And at the end of verse 45, we learn what happens to him. We see that the true sovereign God does prevail and he ends the false reign of the Antichrist. He comes to his end and it says no one will help him. I think that had to be a pretty rude awakening, don't you, for someone who has set himself up as God and demanded to be worshipped and now no one will help him. Paul tells us that the Antichrist will be destroyed simply by the splendor of Christ's coming the second time as he ends the battle of Armageddon. Read 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 with me. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus, and the lawless one is the Antichrist, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. 
And that is the sovereignty of God, ladies, when the simple splendor of Jesus is coming destroys the Antichrist and ends the career of the most evil man in the history of the world. A man who foolishly believed that he could make his own self the sovereign God. Now, the angel gives Daniel great news that the end of the reign of the the Antichrist is going to be ended in the timing of sovereign God. Um, But his vision of the future doesn't end here. He continues on in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And let's finish up. Daniel's vision. At that time, and this is Gabriel the angel continuing to talk to Daniel. At that time, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You know, Dan, Gabriel gives Daniel kind of a good news, bad news scenario here as the vision comes to an end. The bad news is that Israel will experience in the last three and a half years a time of distress unlike any the world has ever known. You know, and the world seems pretty bad now, doesn't it? If you watch the news and you, you know, just hear, it just goes from one thing to another. There's a flood here. There's a tornado there. There's a disaster there. There's uh, evil people um, here and there. It seems pretty bad now. But the scriptures tell us it is just going to be so much worse. We can't even imagine it in the end times. Jesus describes this time in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. For then there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But the good news that Michael, the archangel, uh, but the good news that Gabriel gives Daniel is that Michael, the archangel, even in the midst of the most distressing time that the world has ever known, The prince of Israel protects them, and he is coming to defend Israel and end that distress. If you remember last week, we talked about how Antiochus Epiphanes was spurred on by demonic influences, and he tried to basically annihilate the nation of Israel and prevent the first coming of Christ. That was the whole point of all of that. For some reason... um, Uh, Antiochus thought he could exterminate every Jew. And if he did that, then there would be no Messiah. Fortunately, because God is sovereign over every detail of Israel's past, present, and future, that didn't happen. And the Maccabean revolt occurred. And the Jewish nation overthrew the Syrian um, oppression and were able to rededicate the temple. And, of course, we do know that the Messiah did come. But here, right here, in this time, this last seven years, Satan gives it one more try. And he tries for a final time in the history of the world to exterminate every descendant of Abraham to prevent the return and the reign of Christ on the earth. But again, Israel is delivered by God's sovereign hand. Michael, the archangel, comes to defend them and... um, 
Israel is delivered from this most distressing time. And, of course, we know that um, the second coming of Christ will happen. And in the verse 2, as Daniel tries to take everything in, all of this incredible information about the future, Daniel learns um, one of the greatest blessings and truths of the scriptures, and that is the truth of the resurrection. Unbelieving Jews, those who have continued to die to deny Christ as the Messiah, clear through this distressing time. They have never turned to Christ, even though um, God has given them an opportunity over and over again. They will be resurrected eventually. Uh, they are going to live forever, but they are going to live for an eternity in shame and everlasting contempt, according to God's sovereign plan. But Daniel learns that those who have come to a saving faith in the Messiah during this seven-year period, during this time, are going to be resurrected to eternal life and positions of honor when Christ comes for a second time and establishes his millennial kingdom. This is an interesting and rare passage in the Old Testament because it's one of the very few times in the Old Testament that future resurrection are listed. And what it does is this gives us the timing for the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the believing Jews that have survived the millennial, um, so survived the tribulation to the second coming of Christ. You may want to mark that in your Bible some way so that you know, hey, this is when we learn when the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected. It's going to be after the tribulation uh, when Christ comes the second time and they will enter the millennial kingdom to have their rewards and reign with Christ. Okay, we're going to finish the chapter together. Verses uh, 4 through 13. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. And then I, Daniel, looked and there stood before me, stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. And one of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river? How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and a half a time, when the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, What will be the outcome of all this be? And he replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Okay, so Daniel's vision ends. 
in verse 4, where Gabriel tells him, tells him to close up and seal the scroll. Now, these directions to Daniel by the angel um, are not meant to keep the prophecy a secret. That's a little bit what it sounds like when you read it. You think, okay, he's supposed to put it somewhere where nobody can see it. But actually, what he's telling him is to preserve this revelation because it's so significant and so important. It was also customary for scribes in Daniel's day to put their seal on um, any important documents. So uh, that's really what the angel is telling Daniel. He's telling Daniel to certify this document as real and authentic and then preserve it. Put it away. Um, keep it uh, so that the future generations will have this prophecy. And that's the reason we have it here today in our scriptures is because that's exactly what Daniel did. The last part of verse 4 testifies to the fact that there are going to be attempts um, in the future, in Israel's future and in our future, uh, to understand what God has given Daniel here. And that's true. We know that from the time this prophecy was given to Daniel, that others in the nation of Israel tried to understand it. Uh, some of them have, I assume, and some of them probably haven't. And that's what we're doing today, is we are trying to understand it. And the angel gives Daniel that inclination. There are going to be other people, Daniel, that try to understand this prophecy. And the truth is, more understanding comes with every passing year. We can understand the prophecy up to verse 35 because it is history for us. So as every passing year, more prophecy comes to light. But even though Daniel and his people did not understand these prophecies as well as we might today, looking back on some of them, um, they still would serve to comfort Israel. These prophecies would still be important to Israel, knowing that their sovereign Lord would ultimately deliver them in the end. And if they didn't understand anything else about these prophecies, they got it that at the end times, God would deliver them. He would save them. Because that's what it says over and over again here, that their sovereign God is going to save them. Now, Daniel's final vision is complete, but his conversations with his divine visitors continue. And what we have here in these last few verses is really an interesting question and answer period between the angel and Christ and then Daniel and the angels and Christ. And one of the things I was fascinated by, it was a question in your homework, is the fact that the angel that has come, one of the angels that has come with Christ, asks him a question. And it gives us insight into the fact, and I think it gave me encouragement uh, into the fact that there are things that even angels that travel with Christ that uh, and that deliver prophecy, there are things that they don't know and they don't understand. But I think the important thing for us is that we can do exactly what we see the angel do here, and that is to go straight to God for understanding, to be bold and to say, hey, what's the answer to this? Um, and to be determined to pursue God until we do have understanding and an answer. It is Christ, who is the man described above the water, I believe, um, who answers the question. And when he answers the angel here, he raises his arms as if taking an oath. And in ancient days, it was common for them to raise one arm when they took an oath. And, you know, we still do that today. If we're sworn into an office or if we're going down to sit on the jury, we uh, take an oath and we raise one hand. Uh, but what's significant here is that when Christ takes this oath, what does he do? He raises 
both arms. And that gives extreme, um, it gives the greatest possible assurance to Daniel and the angels that are watching him as he swears by the name of the eternal God that the words that he speaks here are the truth. Now, Daniel has just been given some pretty difficult um, scenarios about the future of the nation of Israel, that they're going to go through the worst distress that the nation of Israel has ever experienced. So you can only imagine how significant it was to him to see Christ raise both arms and take an oath by the eternal God of heaven that this distress would end in three and a half years and that Christ was coming back to get him, to get all of them, to rescue the nation of Israel. It had to have been something that um, Daniel held on to and that he passed on to the people and that over the years as Israel has studied this prophecy that they have said... um, It has been sworn to that when we enter that difficult time of tribulation, it's only going to last three and a half years before Christ comes to get us. In verse 7, Christ says uh, that the power of the holy people are going to be broken during this time. And this is a direct reference to the fact that the nation is going to be completely and utterly defeated during this time of persecution by the greatest persecutor Israel has ever known. And that is God's intention, that Israel would be broken to the point that they looked up and discovered that Jesus was the Messiah and are delivered. Now, Daniel still doesn't have all the information that he wants here. And so in verse 8, he is bold enough uh, to ask a question. And what he wants to know is he, he already has a significant amount of information about Um, the persecutions and the last seven years and how difficult it's going to be. He's been given a lot of prophecy about that. Uh, But what he really wants to know and hasn't been told much about is what are the blessings that Israel is going to receive when you do come in three and a half years and deliver us? Because that's the conversation he's just had with Christ is, I'm going to come back in three and a half years and end the persecution. And now he wants to know, okay, well, what's next? What's after that? And the answer he receives in verse 9 kind of made me smile when I read it because it's a very tactful reminder by whoever answers him. And we don't know whether Christ answers him or the angel answers him. But the person that answers him, whoever, the divine visitor, whoever it is, says, um, basically, you know, Daniel, prophecy is prophecy. And until the time of the prophecy actually comes, we're not, you're not going to have every answer. And, you know, that speaks to us today. Prophecy is prophecy. We can trust in it and we can believe it's true because our sovereign God is true, but we are not going to have every single answer um, about prophecy. Some of it is going to remain obscure, and that's what the angel or Christ tells Daniel here. But when the end times do come, 
and you discover that everything you've been told in prophecy is true, um, you're going to be amazed. And you're going to fall on your knees and worship the one who foretold it to you. In verse 10, we see the threat of God's sovereignty once again as we see that Israel's suffering is going to serve a purpose. I don't know whether you remembered, but last week we talked about the fact when Antiochus Epiphanes had such great persecution on the nation of Israel that it did serve a purpose, that it purified and refined the nation of Israel and brought them um, to the point where the Messiah was going to be born. Uh, The persecution allowed by God in these final seven years and endured by the nation of Israel is going to do the exact same thing. It's going to purify them. It's going to refine them. And it's going to cause some of them to finally understand who Jesus is and to turn to the Messiah during that incredible tribulation and persecution and trust him. But we also see the sad truth here that there are some people that are never going to wise up, that there are going to be wicked people that remain wicked despite the truth you tell them, despite the divine revelation they see, despite the prophecy that is going to be fulfilled, and they are going to perish. You know, there are social um, evolutionists that uh, think that mankind is just getting better and better and better. That are, uh, And if you watch the news every night, you know that's not true. And certainly that's what this verse tells us. At the end times, there are still going to be people that never wise up, that never see the truth, and they are going to perish. Now, we can't leave Daniel's um, prophecy without seeing one of the quirks of prophecy. And I I couldn't, I almost left this out, but I just couldn't bear to leave it out. Uh, Because we get some new information here in verses 11 and 12. uh, And everyone has a different opinion about it. And so you may want to go home and get your commentary out and read it. Uh, But the 1290 days in verse 11, which is the time period from when the sacrifices are ended until... um, Uh, the tribulation period is over, um, is 30 days longer than the three and a half years that we've seen Daniel prophesy in the past because three and a half years is 1,260 days. So why do we all of a sudden have 1,290 days here? And then in verse 12, it goes on to say 1,335 days, which is 45 days longer than the 1,290 days, which is 30 days longer than the 1,260 days. And I thought, really? Could we not have finished up Daniel without throwing that little bit in in the last um, four verses? But let me tell you what the most plausible explanation that I studied was, is that for some reason, um, they think that there was 30 days added on before the 1260 days started. And it may have been that there was an announcement, a proclamation given 30 days before the sacrifices actually ended. Or the sacrifices ended and then there was 30 days and the temple was desecrated and that's when the 1260 days actually start. And then when you get to 1260 days, that extra 45 days, most theologians really believe is about that Christ returns at the end of that 1260 days and those 45 days have to do with him judging the nations because that's going to take place when he comes back and the temple has to be purified and rededicated. So that's uh, what the explanations are about the differences in the days and um, 
probably won't change any of our lives uh, dramatically, but I thought I, I couldn't leave it out. And here we are at the final verse in our journey with Daniel. And the Lord's sovereign hand is now uh, evident on Daniel's life because here in this final verse, uh, Daniel learns his fate. He is, of course, going to die. He was already an old man. And so the angel affirms, yes, Daniel, you are going to die. But he also learns that he is going to be resurrected. And in the millennial kingdom, uh, he will be rewarded uh, in his future for his faithfulness. Uh, Daniel will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ with the Old Testament saints and will enter the millennial kingdom with the rest of the Old Testament saints and be rewarded. Um, We did it. We finished uh, the book of Daniel. And I hope that just like I have, that you have a great list of applications that you've made from all these fabulous lessons uh, out of the scriptures over the last um, seven weeks. But as I said at the beginning, as I said, at the, OK, now don't go yet. I don't want to lose you yet. Everyone, everyone wait. I want us to, to really finish this well. Um, this is not. Daniel's story. This is the story of the sovereignty of God, the story of his sovereign right and his sovereign power over the nation of Israel. And what we've seen for the last 11 weeks is that sovereign power carrying Israel through history and bringing them to a place that we just looked at today where they finally discover as a nation and as individuals who their Messiah is. And some of them will place their faith in him and be redeemed for an eternal future with uh, their Lord and their God. That's what Daniel's about. And as prophecy, Daniel is unparalleled. But as the story of God's sovereignty... It shows us that God is always at work for his people. And that includes us too. He is the potter and we are the clay. From Daniel, we learn the simple and profound truth um, that God is God. A.W. Pink was right. God is God. And as we look at Daniel's prophecies, we can see how God has to the letter fulfilled his predictions in the past. And if you don't have it already, ladies, and I hope after this study you do, if you don't have it already, I hope looking at all these prophecies that have already been fulfilled gives you great confidence as you anticipate the future. Great confidence about your future. Because no matter what our today looks like, and I don't know what your today looks like, and you don't know what my today looks like, or even my tomorrow or your tomorrow looks like, we can know from Daniel's prophecies that there is another day coming. And we can have confidence in that. A day coming beyond the present one when Christ will reign with his saints on the earth. And that is an absolute truth that we can get from Daniel. As women of God, we have studied the prophecies of Daniel together. And because of that, we can look forward to that day with such great confidence trusting in God's sovereignty and rejoicing in the truth of his word. Revelation 22.20 on your verse sheet says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come.